right. Hello, I'm Brian, and uh, very grateful to be here uh, this morning. I'll just start off being honest. I got like an hour of sleep uh, last night, literally, so uh, you get what you pay for. Um, basically, the, the reason was because I was so, I, I had to ask, like, am I nervous? And, and the reality is no. Um, this, this topic, um, this topic is for me uh, a very uh, close to home issue. Um, and I just sensed that at least one, maybe a few people um, have maybe a similar background as me, uh, struggle possibly in this arena of anger like I do. And the whole week I was feeling this pressure to just put on a, a, a great face and, and come out and say, I've got this all figured out. Um, and I just sensed the Lord uh, really pressing me to just say, like, this, uh, for me, is a topic that I'm walking through right now, uh, that I'm growing in right now, and by God's grace uh, that he's bringing some healing. And, and I believe that God wants to do uh, some of that for you. I grew up in a home uh, that was uh, highly abusive um, and, and had some, some trauma things when I was younger. So, so for me, the topic of anger is like, uh, it's like a, the, the friend or the neighbor that you don't really like, but he's just kind of there. It's like, it's always been there. So he's been a part of my life. Uh, and Oops. Check, check. There we go. That's all right. <laughs> Feel free to cut me short. That's all right. Yeah. Um, for years, uh, have, have dealt with this, this and, and, and when we talk about anger, again, what Sam touched on last week, uh, all emotions are amoral. You know, when, when we're talking about uh, the emotion of anger, I don't want you to hear today that anger itself is, is bad, but uh, the flip side of the emotion anger, the unhealthy side of anger, um, if you're like me, you've experienced firsthand uh, what death uh, that, that emotion can bring when gone untethered, when not harnessed by God the Holy Spirit, when it's just left to free reign uh, in, a, in a home that maybe is not walking with God or is walking in the flesh, often the death that that can bring uh, is substantial death to the person, death to the relationships, death to the relationship with God. And I just feel uh, led to, to, to share that this morning, the heart uh, behind this is that you would experience life. We serve a God and a, and, a, and a kingdom that is all about life. Everything in the kingdom of God lives, living stones, living bread, living water, the resurrection and the life the way, the truth, the life. It's all about life. Jesus wants you to experience life. And so if you have this, if you have this background, if you have this issue, if you're dealing and struggling with this sin, um, the, the sinful side of anger, uh, I want to give hope this morning that God uh, is in the life business and he's here to bring healing this morning. Um, I just want to start with prayer. Lord, you are so good. You are so kind to bring us uh, to a place in a country where we can freely gather, to discuss your word, to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge and understanding of you. That eternal life, Jesus prayed, 
is knowledge of you. It's to know you. And I ask that this morning, if there are any footholds in the hearts and minds of your people, God, that you would just tear them down, that you would trade beauty for ashes, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that this morning through your word and your spirit, you would bring freedom in this area. And so God, uh, I humbly proclaim, I am not you. I want to get out of the way and let you speak. And uh, thank you, Jesus, for who you are, what you've done. Amen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If there was ever a bumper sticker slogan with Jesus, it would be that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, how near is it? So near that in him we live and move and breathe and have our being. So near that when two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. So near that the Apostle Paul couldn't help but proclaim the great mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. That it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The kingdom is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. See, the context determines the meaning of the words, not the words themselves. So when you hear, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, some of you already in your mind are hearing it in the wrong lens. Give me an example how context determines the meaning. If I'm standing up here and I've got a jersey on and a ball in my hand and I say the words, let's kill him, you're probably thinking what? Let's win the game. But if I'm standing up here with an AK-47 in my hand and flak jacket on, you're probably thinking something different. The context, the context determines the meaning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The context of what we're going to talk about this morning is God's love, God's irrepressible, unchangeable, untethered love. God is love. He is just. He is holy. And he is love. God demonstrates his love that while we're still sinning, Christ died for us. God so loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his son. So the context this morning is God's undeserved love for you. Religion likes to start with the facts. I've said this before here. Jesus didn't start with the facts. When he's dealing with people, when he's interacting with men, women, kids, he didn't start with the facts. Jesus always began in the context of love, and he led with mercy, and then he faced the facts. I think of the woman at the well. He's sitting there, and he asks her for a drink. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me, and I would have given you rivers of living water. Let me have some of this water. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right in saying you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands. He's going to get to the facts eventually. He always does. But religion wants to start there. So if the essence of today is the facts first, and you walk away feeling shame and guilt and 
and anything but the tangible love of God for you while addressing possibly a, a, a big issue in your life. Um, it's my desperate prayer that you wouldn't. So, we're going to talk about anger. Repent. Repent literally means to change your mind. I used to hear the word repent in the wrong context, and what I always learned, what I always heard, was that repent meant to turn from sin. Stop sinning. Just turn from sin. While it certainly includes sin, the word metanoia does not actually mean turn from sin. It literally means to change your mind or change your purpose. So repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the call today. That maybe you're believing one thing. Jesus is asking you to literally do a 180 in your thinking. That your thoughts would not be aligned with the world, but you'd be aligned with a new kingdom. So we're going to talk through three things. The theology of anger. What does the Bible actually say about this emotion? Number two, the symptoms of sinful anger. And three, by God's grace, the healing of sinful anger. The theology of anger. Our working definition of anger is the emotional response to a perceived injustice. An emotional response to a perceived injustice. Anger is a communicable attribute that we share with God. What that means, it's a big, fancy theological word for we are image bearers of God, some attributes we share with him. We have joy, we sing, we have fellowship, communication, communion with one another. As image bearers of God, anger is part of not your sin nature, it's part of your human nature. Anger, if it was sinful would mean that God is sinful because God gets angry. There's several words, Hebrew words in the Old Testament for anger. Um, I'm just going to go through a list of texts just so we can hear what God is getting angry about. But I'll tip my hat a little bit. Um, in the Old Testament, over 100 times, the Bible talks about God's anger. More than that. And almost every single time, it's in relationship to Israel's disobedience or their idolatry. Their disobedience or their idolatry. 1 Kings 14.9 But you've done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, to have cast me behind your back. The Hebrew word is, is kas, K-A-A-S, and it, it means to be provoked. Have you ever had kids and you understand what that's like? First uh, Kings 14, 15. The Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond Euphrates because they have made their ashram uh, provoking the Lord to anger. 2 Kings 22, 17, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be 
quenched. Ezekiel 16.42, So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be calm and will no more be angry. So this idea of anger, oh, Numbers 12.9, and, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Joshua 7.1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, Son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. God gets angry. God gets angry. And it's important to note I grew up with an understanding that the Old Testament God and the, the God of the Bible in general was only angry with me all the time. Maybe you're like me. You've been in church for a while, and you've heard enough sin sermons that your view of God and your view of God's wrath is that he is this uncontrollable, petty, megalomaniac that just has a temper. And it's hard for me to say that, but that, that was something I believed for a long time. You hear the literal words of some of these uses of anger means flaring nostrils, right? God is ticked. This is not a, I'm frustrated. This is, he is ready to take action. The question is why? The question is why? So he gets angry at idolatry. He also gets angry at injustice. Exodus 22, 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. It's heavy words. God gets angry righteously. Why is God angry? What is it within God that he can say, I'm jealous? That he can say, I'm angry? Two reasons. Number one, because idolatry, idolatry is choosing to devote yourself to someone or something other than God. And God, in his love, also in his holiness, recognizes that that is his place. You were wired to worship. Make no mistake about it. You were wired to devote yourself, to pour yourself out. The problem is God is jealous for that place of worship. Not because he's a megalomaniac that needs attention, but because that's his rightful place in all creation, is that all creation would righteously cry out to him, holy, 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 we devote ourselves to you, king of kings, lord of lords, he's the alpha, he's the omega. Only God can say this, because that's his place. If I came home tonight, and there's a man sitting at my table at home, eating with my wife and kids, praying over my wife and kids, holding my wife's hand, 
I'm going to be a little jealous. Just a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to be a little jealous. Why? Because that's my place. That's my wife. Those are my kids. That's my table. I'm dad. I'm husband. You're devoting yourself to this stranger, this foreign person, and I'm here devoted to you, covenanting with you. I'm going to be angry. It's my love and it's my my position that causes the anger. Secondly, why God gets angry at the idolatry and angry at the injustice is for our joy. John Piper so beautifully has pointed out in the course of his ministry that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I didn't understand what that meant for the longest time. But what that really means is as you read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and God is calling us to himself to glorify him, it's not just for his glory, though he loves his glory and he is jealous for his glory. But in glorifying him, we experience the height of joy. What could be more loving of God to call us to than the adoration and the exaltation of himself? If that means we will experience the fullness of joy. This is the call of God. The commandment, the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because this is what you were designed to do, to experience the fullness of joy and the exaltation of God. So he gets angry. He gets angry. We should be angry as well. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, to be angry and not sin. If God is angry at injustice, you'll hear some Christians just say, stop being angry. But friends, to be, to be not angry when you're confronted with injustice is the highest form of hatred. To be apathetic to the suffering of a kid who's got broken legs. To parents mistreating, abusing, neglecting. There are many people on the edge of their seat. Wait for you to step on that phone. <laughs> Thank you. Phone, that is. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, I'm in real estate, so if I broke my phone, I'm good. I'm, I would like the break. Um, thank you. Thank you. We should be angry. I think of the amazing organizations that are solving world problems on a mass scale. How many of them, I wonder, started with one person or a group of people angry at injustice, angry at what was happening in the world. One of my favorite international justice mission, Gary Haugen, angry at the poverty, angry at the enslavement, angry at the sex trafficking that he's seeing in the world, the abuse, the objectivity of human lives leads to this unbelievable mission 
and this organization solving and changing hundreds of lives. We should be angry. We should be angry. We should be angry when we see the oppression of the poor. We should be angry when we see false teaching. I think of Paul. I think of Paul writing to the Galatians. Who bewitched you? Who bewitched you? Who took this freedom, this joy in Christ, and wrapped this burden around your neck and you so willingly let them? I wish they would be accursed. He wanted them cursed, castrated. I, he was mad. We should be angry. When we see the people of God being burdened, when we see the poor and the widows and the orphans being oppressed, when we see God's name being profaned, when we see babies being murdered on a global scale the world's never seen before, we should feel something. And so to say Christians shouldn't be angry, it's disingenuous, it's dishonest to the very character of God. We should be angry, yet not sin. But for most of us, we kind of get that. And most of us, let's say, uh, theoretically, we, we understand that to harness our anger for God's glory and social justice is a good thing. And I felt that could have been a very easy ending to a sermon and just gone on my way. <laughs> Don't be angry at the wrong things. Be angry at the right things. The problem is, I think for most of us, it's a little more complicated than that. The anger that we deal with is not necessarily the righteous anger. It's the unrighteous anger. And as humans, is there any hope? Some of you have been given generations and legacies of anger, like I have. And so for you, you are in a category of people who have been enslaved and entrapped by this issue of sinful anger. Some of you have been sinned against, and you're righteously angry at that. Some of you have been wrongfully treated, and all you've seen is anger in the wrong context. And the result is you're angry. You're angry at the injustice to you. And some of us are angry at the wrong things. What are the symptoms of sinful anger? What are the symptoms of sinful anger? We agree we should be angry, but what does it look like when we're angry at the wrong things? We talked about at the beginning, anger is just an emotional response. It's a physiological response. As a human, you're going to feel it. So what is sinful is not the fact that you're experiencing the emotion of anger. What can be off track, what can be misaligned, what can be based in half-truths or no truths at all is an anger built around the kingdom of self. An anger that advances the kingdom of God, awesome. The emotion of anger with the wrong motivation is what we're talking about. So the question is, why are you getting angry? Why are you getting angry? 
a well-known pastor said this, and it was so helpful to give me a framework about Satan because what he said was, if there's anything good about Satan, it's that he is entirely predictable because he always pulls on the same three strings. The kingdom of self, the, the ego, whatever you want to call it, pride, this kingdom of self, think of this like three pillars to that kingdom. 1 John 2 talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Why are you getting angry? The lust of the flesh is the desire to feel. It's the desire to feel good. I just want to feel some relief, some pleasure, some good. I want to feel good. And the kingdom of self and anger misaligned defends against anything that would threaten the experiencing of feeling good. The desires that I have for the flesh. This can be sex. This can be food. This can be alcohol. This can be pot. This can be, there's a million things we medicate ourselves with to feel good. This can be sleep. This can be Netflix. This can be all these things that we run to to hide from the pain of everyday life. And if you ever had kids and it's 8.30 at night and you've already tucked them in and 10 minutes later they come out, ugh, you know what I'm talking about. It's a feeling. I just want some rest. I've been doing this all day. Guys, why are you out of bed? And they get my wrath. That's what happens. Oh, it's just me. Okay, all right, that's fine. Um, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have. It's the desire to accumulate more and more items, more and more materials, more and more money. It's the desire to have. It's people, it's places, it's things. And if anything threatens against those, right? If I get a demotion at work and all of a sudden I've got to make less money, there's an idol. There's a challenge to my idol. I desire to have. How am I going to have? Or more realistically, the fear of not having. Some of you, it's maybe not greed or you wouldn't call it greed, but the desire to have, the desire of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Maybe it looks like you're just so scared of being poor or so scared of being in need or so scared of failing that you work tirelessly. You overexert yourself at everything to try to secure and set up your life so that that idol, so that that pillar would not be under threat. And if it does come under threat, you lose a, a contract with a, a, a client, you deal with some issue related to that God in your life, visceral reaction. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The pride of life is the desire to be. It's the desire to be significant. It's the desire to be known. It's the desire to be praised. It's the desire to be worshipped. It's the desire to be loved. It's the desire to be God. And if anybody threatens that desire, have you met somebody that's very sensitive to criticism? That's very defensive, that's very easily triggered? You say a level two 
comment and you get a level 10 reaction, it's because in essence, their idol, their idol is being affected. Their idol is being threatened. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. There's a lot of work done around the topic of anger. And I don't want to make this a psychology conversation. But three books that were really helpful. One is by Ed Welch. It's called A Small Book About a Big Problem. And it's about the issue of anger. Biblical counselor. Uh, Two secular books uh, that were also helpful. uh, Just understanding the human anatomy. One was called Mind Works. And I forget the author's name. The other was called The Anger Trap. In essence, there are two types of anger. Some of you are going to fall in one. Some of you fall in the other. Some of you follow both. Maybe within the same (laughs) hour. The first is active anger. We all know what this looks like because this is the most obvious. This is the guy that yells, or the gal, okay? Yelling, shouting. They're unable to control what they have to say, so they get very loud. I had a conversation two days ago. Guy's just screaming at me on the phone. It's nothing to do with me, but man, just visceral anger, yelling. Like, I'm st- what did I do wrong? Just talk to me. Come on. Talking over people. Right? You don't let another person get a word in edgewise. Right? They go to say something, nah, up. Because you want, you want to be heard. You don't feel heard. So you talk over people. Some of you damage property. Some of us kick furniture, punch walls, slam doors, kick dogs. Physical abuse, kick kids hurt family members, emotional abuse, yell, belittle, mock. And it's anger. It's this visceral, outward expression of active anger. The second type of anger is passive anger. Some of you say, maybe that's not my thing. Nobody would ever know that you're angry, but you're angry. (laughs) Rovin says that's her. Amen, me too. Right? You stonewall. Your anger's not outward, it's withdrawn. You protect yourself. You walk away, you shut your phone off, you ignore the calls. You don't let the other person be in your presence. Why? Because you're angry. Sarcasm, criticism. Have you met these folks? Everything's a joke, everything's a a mock, but you know that what they're saying has some sort of truth, so you're totally hurt by what they say. We've got friends like this. Like every single time I talk to him, it's some sarcastic comment. And last time I was with him, I just said, bro, what are you so angry about? (laughs) He's like, I'm not angry. Yeah, you're kind of angry. (laughs) Right? Hey, way to show up on time after you're 10 minutes late, right? We all know that person. The critical eye. This is the person, they will tell you when you've done something wrong. You will know there is nothing you can do that will prevent that one thing that you've done out of place. Repeating yourself. Some of you do this. You may not think it's anger, but you don't feel heard. So what do you do? You repeat yourself. You make your point. The other person responds. What do you do? You say the same exact thing again. (laughs) And then you say it again until what? You feel heard. But it's anger. The passive-aggressive all met this person. Hi. You're late again. 
you're late again. Mm -hmm. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, I'm totally fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, fuming out of her ears, out of his ears, gossiping, right? Gossiping. You may not think this is a sign of anger. We may even call this prayer groups, but come on. Sometimes you don't feel heard or validated or there's no way to solve the, the issue with the person or the thing. And so what do you do? You vent. I'm just venting. Thanks for letting me vent. But really, it's gossip. And it's anger. It's anger expressing itself passively. And lastly, self-medicating. We talked about this. Some of you, you would not say, I'm angry. But instead of dealing with what you're feeling, okay, you get criticized. Your boss yells at you. Right? You dent your car. Some issue happens. Instead of dealing with the pain, you self-medicate. You go to the desires of the flesh. That's passive anger. We've all seen the effects of this. Sinful anger, untethered, unredeemed, unchanged. Always, whether it's now or later, leads to death. The wages of sin is death. It will lead to death to yourself. The human heart and heart conditions stressed out by this issue of anger. Death to my relationship with God. It's really hard to enjoy the pleasures of God when you're bitter, when you've got unforgiveness. And I said it before, I'll say it again, sometimes it's justified. Some of us have actually been sinned against. Some of us have things we legitimately, we have something against somebody but the bitterness is rotting you from the inside out. The anger is destroying you from the inside out. And when you're with God, you feel inauthentic because there is unhealed hurt, unmet pain. God's grace has not yet touched that area in your heart. You want blood for this. Heard a story the other day. Guys talking to a pastor, his daughter had been abused, sexually molested. Dad, obviously, ready to kill somebody. So angry. And the pastor said, I get it. Friend, I get that you want blood for this. Rightfully so. And blood has already been shed for this. Friend, some of you need to hear this. You've been carrying weights and wrath and bitterness for so long. And God wants you to release that to him not that it's not addressed. It's always addressed. Jesus always faces the facts. God always faces the facts. But it's either going to be in hell for eternity or it's going to be on the cross of Jesus. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Some of you need to hear that. Let it go. Address it. Address the pain. Address the hurt. And cast it on the cross of Jesus. How do I get healed? <laughs> Sam talked about Tony Mendenhall. I, um, I, I helped out at Hearts of the Mission for a season, and I took this training with those guys, and it was really, really helpful. I'm taking this training to help the kids. I'm there to volunteer for the kids. And they start describing this ACEs study, and they start describing these kids, kids who have grown up in trauma, kids who have grown up with anger, kids who are triggered easily, right? You're at a certain risk category is how they see it. Their brains function in a different way than a normal, healthy kid. 
And, and it has everything to do with their environment, trauma, and of course, you know, their own sinful desires. But their brains trigger easily. They use language like this, that when the hypothalamus gets heated up, you get triggered, your cortisol level goes through the roof, your adrenaline's through the roof, and he used it like this. And when you're like this, you can't be reasoned with, you can't be talked to. This is why when you try to punish your kid in the moment, it almost never works because they physically, literally can't hear you, right? It takes about 20 minutes for your cortisol to drop, your mind to come back, to be able to hear, to be able to reason. So they're describing these kids, they're describing these issues, and all of a sudden, I realize this isn't about the kids anymore. They're describing me. Uh, I want to leave right now. I don't like this. And, uh, and God had me there to hear this hopeful message. If this is you, and some of you, you deal with this and your environment was fine. Some of you, this is just sin. Some of you, this is just anger you're carrying. I don't want to blame it all and, and victim mentality. But friends, if you are struggling with anger, this was the hopeful word from the gal that was teaching the seminar, brought hope to me, want to bring hope to you. All the science points to the fact that the brain is malleable. The human brain can change. The patterns, the ruts that have been developed for years, decades, they can change. And I didn't know that. All the damage I was causing in my relationship with God to myself, to my family, to my friendships, built around this issue of anger. And there's hope it can change. And then I remembered what Jesus said. Repent. Change your mind. Change the very essence of the way you think. Believe. Believe the things that Jesus has said. Think of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is wanting to understand, how does salvation work? Do I climb back into my mother's womb? How does that work? And what does Jesus say? I've spoken to you these things, and you have not believed me about earth. How will you grasp heavenly things? Do you believe Jesus about earth? Do you believe what God has said? That your mind can change, that we can think different thoughts, that we can align our thoughts very practically, very practically, what you think determines what you desire, which determines what you feel, which determines what you do. What you think determines what you desire, what you want, then what you feel, and then what you do. Sam said this last week, that the thought life is upstream from the behavior. I had a uh, conflict with my wife earlier this, this week. Uh, again, I know only I struggle with this, so it's fine. Um, had a conflict with my wife. Was feeling overwhelmed. This is the busiest time of, of year for me with work. So much going on. She made some comments. I had a level eight reaction to a level one comment. We're in conflict. We're not talking. The next day, She's like, well, you just take some time. I'm going to take the kids, and you just, you just get some time with God. She's like, maybe you want to turn your phone off and, I don't know, deal with some of this stuff. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll deal with some of this stuff. And I, and I did an exercise that I want to share, changing your mind. How do you actually change your mind? 
you have to understand what it is that you really believe. The core beliefs that you have about earth, about God, about yourself, about the world, shape what you desire, shape what you feel, and shape what you do. So I'm sitting there, house is empty. I'm like, I'd much rather just like watch Netflix, okay, medicate. But I said, I'm going to use this time, and I'm going to get with God. So I'm just going to share authentically. Here's what I was believing, and this is an invitation. This takes time. This takes time with God. This takes honesty to actually deal with what you're feeling. As a guy, I hate doing this, just saying. Here's what I was believing. When I'm stressed, this is what I wrote down, when I'm stressed, have many things happening at once, I believe I can and should be everywhere at one time solving everyone's problem. When I realistically can't, I get angry, feel burdened, and I can't say no or wait at work. That's honestly a core belief that I had been walking in. I honestly believed that I could be omnipresent like God. I could answer every email, every text, solve every issue, clean every room, do everything all at once. And I can't. Because when reality hit me, I realized that is not true. The truth is, say, that's the lie. What's the truth? Only God is omnipresent. God wants me to trust him and not be anxious. And then I went to Luke 12. God's talking about not being anxious. It's his good pleasure. This is the words of Jesus. It's his good pleasure to give me the kingdom. The kingdom is nearness. It's knowledge of him. It's intimacy. It's knowledge. It's eternal life is to know God. And it's God's good pleasure to give this to me. I don't have to fight for it. I have to work for it. And it's okay to not be the best realtor in the world. <laughs> it's really hard to say. That's what I believed. Down the list, I could go. Things that I've been thinking that led to my desires, that led to my feelings, that led to my actions, and I was causing death in myself. Then this week, in the midst of that, okay, I have that exercise, my belief changed. I'll just say my belief in that area, I was starting to embrace the change. Then I'm in my time with the Lord, and I read John 15. Jesus says, and here's the thing, you want the fruit of the Spirit, you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control, you want to experience the overflow of this fruit? Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God wants you to experience joy, his joy, abiding in his love. I've got 38 seconds. Sam, can I go a little bit? All right. So I, I read that. I've gone through this exercise with my wife, and I confessed it to her. Okay, James says, confess your sins one to another and you'll be healed. Okay, I talked to her about this. This is what I've been believing. So then I read Jesus' words about abiding, abiding. The idea of abiding is ongoing relational presence of God. Ongoing. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop. Stay connected. And you will bear fruit. That's his promise, his words, so I'm going to trust him. So two days ago, I've got meeting after meeting after meeting, okay? Same situation I've been dealing with. I mean, probably the busiest day of the year, from morning all the way till like 12 at night. I get through my first three meetings. I stop at a title company, I get in the car, I go to turn on my car, it's dead. I've got a 12-15 meeting that I have to be at they have been asking to see this place. There's, it's, it's a lot riding on this 12:15 meeting. I'm going to look like an idiot, but that's less of a point. But they would not be served well if I miss this. My car's not working. I remember Jesus tells me to abide, and I will bear the fruit. My normal reaction in that situation is to... No object is safe. I'm usually punching something. I'm mad. I'm yelling. Something is happening. I kid you not, I felt overwhelming peace because my father was near and is near. And if his will is that I don't make it to the meeting and I look like an idiot, so be it. I call my wife. She doesn't answer. It's all right. I'm not bitter. I get out of the car. I have to leave in seven minutes or I'm going to miss it. There's no way. I think, what can I do? I'm in the worst part of East Medford that has the absolute worst service. No service. So I thought, I'll download Lyft somehow. I run into the title company, download Lyft, get it all set up. I say, okay, here's where I need to go. 45-minute wait. Oh, okay, 45. So, Lord, if you want me to wait 45 minutes and cancel and mess up the day, I so be it. As long as I'm with you, and this was legitimate, genuine, as long as I'm with you, I don't care. I pull it up again, three-minute wait. Boom, made it on time. That's a small, that's a small victory on a series of, of failures, but... I share that to say this, 
this is a very practical, the presence of God is so practical in day-to-day life. We, we, we fail as Christians when we make God a concept, when we make him information alone. If it's information alone, it's all about being right. I've got to have the right words at the right time in the right way. But if the gospel is a person, if the kingdom is literally a person who's risen from the dead and he sent his spirit and that spirit dwells within me, it's all about being near. Repent, 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 for the kingdom of heaven is near. My desperate prayer for you is not that you would, I don't think that one sermon can change everything, but by God's grace, if this is you, I believe God is inviting you now to healing, that he's inviting you to presence, that he's inviting you to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your presence. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that in the midst of difficulties in life, um, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, Lord, you give us hope. And that hope is not found in concepts or principles. It's found in a person who's living and active. And God, it's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom And so my prayer for us, my prayer for myself, is that we would experience more and more of your kingdom through your word, by the power of your spirit, for your glory, and that freedom would abound in this room, that freedom would abound in the families here, that freedom would abound in the lives and the hearts and the minds of those that have had footholds for years and decades and centuries, that you would bring freedom, because who the sun sets free is free indeed. We trust you at your word. We take you at your word. This is all your promises. And so we trust that what you've said, you will accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.